the swallow study made it obvious that we needed to connect with the cardiothoracic surgeon again. And when we did, he sent her in for a CT with contrast. And that was when the diagnosis was clear. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the mother of an adult with a critical congenital heart defect. My child is 27 years old, my inspiration, and the reason I am the host of your program. Today's show is Beating Failure to Thrive, and our guest is Debbie Lewis. What exactly is failure to thrive? How has one mother battled that diagnosis? What resources are available to help other families dealing with failure to thrive? Debbie Lewis is mom to two daughters, Ronnie and Sammy. In 2005, Debbie's second daughter's birth began what would be a nearly decade-long journey through the confusion and inefficiencies of modern pediatric specialty medicine. Initially trusting and slowly growing more frustrated, Debbie learned quickly that even within the same hospital, silos had developed that kept her child from an accurate diagnosis and treatment plan. Through research and introspection, Debbie began piecing together the mistakes and wrong turns that her family took from constant medical mystery into the final surgery that would change her daughter's life and her own for good. She is the author of Kitchen Medicine, How I Fed My Daughter Out of Failure to Thrive, and has written for outlets including the New York Times, Bon Appetit, Huffington Post, Romper, Wired, and more. You can learn more about her at www.debbielewis.com, and that Debbie is D-E-B-I, and you can follow her on Twitter at, at Grow the Sunshine which I just absolutely love. And I'm so excited to have you on the program. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Debbie. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm happy to have you today. I love your Twitter handle. Mm -hmm. That's such a cute tag. I love it. Thanks. Let's start by talking about Sammy. When did you discover that Sammy had a heart defect? We didn't actually figure out that Sammy had a congenital heart defect until she was 13 months old, although there were many opportunities along the way before that when we should have. She Mm -hmm. was diagnosed with a little bit of extra floppy tissue in her larynx, a condition called laryngomalacia, when she was just about six weeks old, and that really masked the real problem. She always had trouble with breathing and with feeding, and it wasn't until she was over a year old when a doctor wanted to take another look and determined that she had a vascular ring called a double aortic arch that was wrapped around her trachea and esophagus, squeezing them and compressing them. And so, uh, yeah, she was 13 months old when we discovered the defect. I've never heard of anybody having that extra flap of skin on the larynx. Did they Mm -hmm. remove it? No, it isn't something that actually needs to be removed. Most of the time, children simply outgrow it. Oh, So the advice we'd been given when Sammy got so ill with every respiratory infection was that she would grow out of this problem. And the best thing we could do was to keep her away from other children in crowds. Some of us will recognize that advice from the last two years right. of staying away from crowds. Okay. So I had to quit my job and take her out of childcare and stay home with her. And we hoped it would be all over within a couple of years. Okay. So she gets this diagnosis. You said it's six months with the laryngeal problem. Uh, Six weeks. 
Oh, six weeks. Okay. So mm-hmm. at six weeks, you knew, which is very young. She yes. was not even sitting up at that point. She was still really tiny. And so you were hopeful that that was all that was causing the problems until you discover this vascular ring. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yes. Okay. That is really unique. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard of one other person who's been on my program in eight years of podcasting who's also had wow. the vascular ring. So I think it's really rare, isn't it? Well, interestingly, I think what's rare is for children to continue to have challenges with it after it's repaired. Our heart surgeon explained to us that of the percentage of children born with congenital heart defects, this is one of the more common ones, but it usually is a, they called it a one and done surgery. You have the surgery when you discover it and go on to lead a normal life and they don't see those patients again most of the time. So what you have is a very small group of people who even talk about it after their children are repaired. Wow. So maybe that's why I don't know many, because if it is a one and done, they don't see the need to continue to get support in the heart community, which exactly most of the people that I deal with have single ventricle hearts or TGA or TOF, something that's an ongoing condition. And you didn't think you had an ongoing condition. So here you thought, Mm. okay, it's a one and done. We'll get this taken care of. She's going to outgrow the other problem, but that's not the case. No. The surgery was supposed to repair the initial compression that was put on her trachea and her esophagus. And in fact, the doctors told us that when they released the vascular ring, her trachea opened 50% more than it had before. And what they said was that the esophagus almost immediately recovers because it's a very spongy organ. And so once you remove, if you could imagine it being like a rubber band around both of those things, Mm -hmm. the esophagus is supposed to bounce back right away. And so it didn't ever occur to us over the course of the next six years to follow up with cardiothoracic surgery team ever again we were told we were done. We were released from care. Her problems with eating persisted. She never really liked food. She was excited about things that were wet and soft, like fruit, like berries. Anyone who's seen the cover of my book will see the blueberries shaped like a heart on the cover Mm because that was her very favorite food. And she liked those kinds of things, but she didn't like anything that was thick, like say yogurt or milkshakes or ice cream. She didn't like anything that was dense and it's hard to grow a kid on blueberries. So we continued to have feeding problems. Mm -hmm. So you felt that the medical community wasn't really getting to the root of the problem. Isn't that true? Yes. Her pediatrician kept telling me that some kids take longer to really enjoy food and she was growing. It was on a very, very sort of not too steep trajectory, but she was growing. She had been born very small and remained very small. And along the way, there were several things that doctors thought would finally kick her into gear. She'd have that big growth spurt and then we would stop thinking about this, but none of those things really helped. She had her tonsils and adenoids out. That didn't really help. She went through getting ear tubes and we tried high fat foods and we were constantly chasing her around with a sippy cup of carnation instant breakfast, but nothing ever really worked. And when she was four, her continuing reflux started to really concern her pediatrician. Most kids outgrow baby reflux by two or so. And so she was sent to see a gastroenterologist and was diagnosed with a very rare condition called eosinophilic esophagitis. It's kind of like an allergic reaction in your esophagus. If you imagine eczema coating the inside of your esophagus. And that was when the intense challenges with feeding really began. 
Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home tonight forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Debbie, let's start this segment by talking about failure to thrive. We already alluded to it in the first segment, but my son was also diagnosed with failure to thrive before his heart defect was identified. In the interview you did with Jenny and Dan Muscatel on, and that's the hashtag truth, you talked about how failure to thrive is not really a diagnosis, it's a symptom. And I was so happy to hear you say that because when my baby was diagnosed with failure to thrive, I almost burst into tears. When I was in college studying to be a special education teacher, we were told babies who were diagnosed with failure to thrive were babies who weren't loved. And that was not my baby. And that was not your baby. And I want us to talk a little bit more about that because I feel like that diagnosis is a hurtful diagnosis. I agree. I feel like there have to be better ways to describe a child who is not growing at the rate at the average child grows than using the word failure. Mm -hmm. And in particular, failure to thrive, thriving encompasses so much more than how tall and how heavy you are. Mm -hmm. Thriving to me includes all kinds of developmental milestones. And I had this cute, round-faced, pink-cheeked little girl who was talking and walking and dancing and climbing. She just was very small. And Mm -hmm. so the word failure, I felt, was a really judgmental way of Mm -hmm. describing that growth trajectory. Yeah, I did too. And what my pediatrician said to me after she labeled my son with that diagnosis was, oh, it's not just babies who aren't loved. It's also babies who are critically ill. Now, your baby had a number of diagnoses before you were really told that she was failure to thrive. And so I can see where for you, that might make a lot of sense. But my kid had never had a fever. He didn't vomit. He didn't eat though. Like you were saying that you struggled. I was nursing my baby and he would keep falling asleep while nursing on me. And was torture. I was told all these different ways to hold him. And I had to get a wet washcloth and put a cool washcloth on him while I was nursing him to wake him up to get him to eat a little bit longer. So I knew that something was going on. So I agree with you. I think it's a symptom. The fact that he wasn't able to stay awake to nurse and he never woke up crying. Those to me were all signs that there was something more going on. 
Absolutely. And also, I think that it should be the trigger for the medical system to start looking for the cause as opposed to, at least in my experience, pointing at the mother and saying in what felt like a very condescending tone, hey, mom, you got to get some more calories in her. As though I didn't spend all day, every day trying to get more calories in her. Exactly. Exactly. I think that we need to be noisy about this, Debbie. First of all, I agree with you. I think they need to change the terminology completely because I think it's damaging. I don't know about you, but I could hear that diagnosis running through my mind long after we finally did figure out what was really wrong. But I think you're right. And I want to talk more about what you talked about on Jenny's show So you said on Jenny's show that you believe there is something that can be done in the medical community where this diagnosis would trigger the doctors to start investigating on a deeper level. And my husband is a nurse and he uses Epic, which I don't know if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. Epic, but can you talk to me a little bit more because you have that programming experience and I'd really like for us to talk about this and investigate it. I have a lot of people who are nurses who come on my program and there are nurses and doctors who listen to it. And I would love us to plant a whole bunch of seeds in this area, Debbie. Yes, thank you. I think this applies maybe a little bit more to the congenital heart defect aspect of Sammy's diagnosis than it does to the failure to thrive, but I think they're very connected. What I wished could have happened was that for the three and a half years when Sammy was being treated for eosinophilic esophagitis, which, spoiler alert, she did not have, there was never a trigger in Epic or in my chart or whatever system they were using in the hospital that said, hey, You're talking about this child's esophagus. There is another doctor in this building who has actually had his hands on this child's esophagus. Would you like to consult with that doctor? Right. And I think that applies across the board with many conditions. I think that doctors as gifted and talented as they are and as wildly grateful as I am to have their expertise often have the, if all I have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of attitude about their specialty area. And it can be hard for them, in my opinion, to remember to check in with other members of the team in their hospital to collaborate on diagnostic tools. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it seems to me your daughter had a number of unusual conditions with that extra laryngeal flap. And then apparently the vascular ring is not as uncommon as I thought it was. But did they consider testing her DNA, looking for some kind of genetic syndrome or something like that? Because she had several different components that I think are unusual. Well, she did have genetic testing as a newborn because she was born at 41 weeks. So that's post dates, right? Mm -hmm. And she was under five pounds. And so that immediately sent the antenna of the genetic specialists in the infant special care unit tweeting and beeping. So they did a full round of genetic testing on her as a newborn and didn't find anything out of sorts. So yeah, from a genetic perspective, she's not abnormal. So 
there wasn't a push to do any more genetic testing. However, in the end, as I was working on my book, I did pay to have the entirety of her medical record from that hospital sent to me on a CD-ROM. I had expected that the gastroenterology team that claimed they hadn't finished reading her chart and didn't know she'd been born with a congenital heart defect. I imagined that that detail would have been somewhere deep in the chart somewhere and that it would be not unusual that you might have missed it. But it turns out that that information was on literally every single surgical report from the 13 endoscopies that Sammy had. On every single report, she was described as a child with a repaired vascular ring. Wow. And yet they claimed that they didn't know that and they didn't understand what that might mean considering what's going on with her trachea and her esophagus. That's right. Amazing to me. Tell me more about what you learned about Sammy's heart defect. So a vascular ring, and in her case, the variation called a double aortic arch is when in utero, the arteries and veins that travel the whole body, they begin at the heart with the aorta. And at some point during fetal development, they fuse to become the aorta as one piece. But in Sammy's case, her aorta had split into two arches that wrapped around her trachea and esophagus and connected on the other side. So like I said before, imagine a rubber band around the trachea and esophagus. So the surgery, while it sounds scary, is actually fairly simple. They use a thoracotomy, a back incision along her shoulder blade, and checked the blood pressure in her toes when they clamped each side of the arch, found the arch that was the strongest blood supply, and ligated the other arch. So in Sammy's case, her right arch was the best one. So that's where they left it. For most people, your aortic arch is on the left side, but for Mm -hmm. Sammy's, it's on the right. And that would prove to be the reason for her continuing challenges many years after that surgery. Okay. So she had basically two aortas. One of them decided to strangle the esophagus and the trachea. They cut that one away and they thought everything should be fine. They never said she needed to go back for an echo or anything after that? No. After the surgery, they did a follow-up swallow study. They even dilated her esophagus to make sure she could swallow. And that was very effective for about three days. For the three days after they dilated her esophagus, around age 15 months, she ate pizza. She ate the foods with her fingers enthusiastically. And about three days later, she stopped entirely. We were just told that she was going to need to grow out of this and she would eat, but she never did. And after being treated for eosinophilic esophagitis for several years, she continued to have problems with eating. She ate slowly. She drank a lot of water when she was eating. And she told me something strange on a regular basis. She would say, I'm hungry, but the food is all the way to my throat. And I thought that meant that she was having reflux and that Mm. sort of would make sense. But what we learned when she was eight years old was that her right aortic arch was attempting to cross her esophagus. In my mind, I don't know if this is really how it works, but in my mind, I imagine that the aortic arch knew it was supposed to be on the left and was trying to get there through the esophagus. On the other side of her esophagus, scar tissue from the first surgery had essentially adhered it to her chest wall. So if you can picture Harry Potter's scar or a lightning bolt, that's the shape that Sammy's esophagus was in. Oh my gosh. So it was kind of twisted, wasn't it? 
Yes, it had right angles in it. So when she said the food was all the way to her throat, that's because it was. Her esophagus would fill above the first right turn and reverse peristalsis would start happening. And then eventually it would move past that right turn and go down. But it took a long time, which we learned by watching her swallow marshmallow fluff on a barium swallow study. And that was when we knew she needed another cardiac surgery. Wow. Okay. So almost a mother's worst nightmare, you realize your daughter's heart has to be operated on again. Who finally gave you that diagnosis? The swallow study made it obvious that we needed to connect with the cardiothoracic surgeon again. And when we did, he sent her in for a CT with contrast. And that was when the diagnosis was clear. What she needed was to have her aorta moved out of the way and pinned to the wall of her chest. And so that was done when she was eight years old. Wow. And once she had that done and the aorta was put more in a position that it should have been to begin with, Mm -hmm. did all of her swallowing and feeding issues evaporate or did she still have problems? Well, the day of her surgery, in the afternoon after she sort of woke up a little bit, we gave her a, a cup of water with a straw to drink from. And she took a sip and her eyes got really big. And I asked her if it hurt. And she said, no, it's so cold. And later that day when she ate a little bit of fruit, she said, it's so fast when it goes down. What she said was, it's like, instead of, she didn't know that's how it's supposed to feel, right? So immediately we could tell that she could swallow better. But eight and a half years of swallowing the way she did and feeling the way she did can't be undone overnight. Mm -hmm. And in the end, we did take her to a feeding therapist to help her trust her body and move past the fear that she had that the food would come back up. So I would say her surgery was in April. And by the fall, I feel like she was eating like a normal nine-year-old girl. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Debbie, in this segment, I can't wait to talk to you about your writing. Tell me what prompted you to put together your most recent book. I am a writer in my soul and in my heart. I have two degrees in creative writing, bachelor's and master's. And so writing is the way that I process my feelings and the way that I think about the world. It is sort of natural to me to want to write about this. But in the end, the reason that I chose to write a memoir was that 
almost all of our friends and family were pushing us to sue the gastroenterology team that had derailed Sammy's full treatment for such a long time. And I'm not someone who necessarily believes in lawsuits as the perfect way to resolve problems. Mm -hmm. I certainly think that they have a place, especially when families are going to incur long-term medical costs or when there's going to need to be money for care or when there's been huge losses of income. But in our case, we knew we would not need it. We are very blessed and very privileged and the money wasn't going to solve anything for us. And shortly after Sammy was well, I got a message in a congenital heart disease group for parents of kids with, with vascular rings from a parent who had their child also diagnosed with eosinophilic esophagitis. And Mm. immediately I sent her a long message explaining what she could do to check to be sure that was the right diagnosis because it hadn't been for Sammy. Mm -hmm. And the work of treating a child with eosinophilic esophagitis is intense. Lots of strange diets, many, many endoscopies with full anesthesia. And I just didn't want her to go through that. And when I thought about it, if I could do that with one parent Maybe I could do that with more parents by making my story more public. And that, in the end, is why I decided to write the book. I'm so glad that you did, because I'm sure she's not the only child who's had this problem, but maybe not all other parents felt as confident as you were that you could get to the root of it. And I mean, you were so persistent. Thank heavens. Your daughter had the right mother. Oh, I certainly have the right daughter too. (laughs) That's a sweet thing to say. I'm excited to read your book. It looks like it's so interesting. I love the title. Who helped you come up with that title? Well, a lot of that title was the publisher. Publishing is, as people know, an industry. It's a business. It certainly wants to share art and to be the purveyor of beautiful words, but they're also looking to sell books. And they really wanted to make sure that the words failure to thrive were in the title. As a fiction writer at heart, I'm a little more lyrical and I wanted a title that was a little more pretty. And so this was a great compromise between us. The words kitchen medicine to me are much more about my own journey than Sammy's because for her, the medicine was not in the kitchen. We thought it would be. I thought I could cook my way out of this, but that wasn't really what she needed. In the end, the kitchen medicine was for me to feel competent, to feel accomplished, to feel satisfied, to be creative, and to feel like I was doing something for my daughter. And so the healing really came for me. Oh, I just love that. And I think that's brilliant that you recognize that that was the one thing you could control. You couldn't control the diagnosis. You couldn't control what these doctors were not doing to fix your daughter. The one thing you could do was to provide the best food that you could for your daughter to give her as many options as possible. And what I understood from listening to you on Jenny and Dan's show is that you're vegetarian, which added a little bit more complexity to trying to repair things with food because you were already limited. Yes. When Sammy was first diagnosed with eosinophilic esophagitis, one of the frontline therapies is to take out all of the major allergens from her diet. So that's dairy, soy, 
eggs, nuts, and wheat. And so they didn't want us to add meat in, although we absolutely would have because she'd never had meat before and they didn't want to complicate things. Mm -hmm. Knowing now what we know about the condition of her esophagus, it is such a blessing that she didn't eat meat because meat meat absolutely would have become impacted in her esophagus. But I've been a vegetarian since I was 14 years old. And so we had always fed the kids vegetarian food and given them the option if they ever wanted to try meat, but neither of them have been that interested. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it was a blessing that Mm -hmm. you were feeding her with the kinds of foods that you did, because it did give her body a chance to at least absorb as many nutrients as possible. And like you said, it didn't become impacted, which would have been so painful for her. Oh, and scary. Yeah. Mm -hmm, Really scary. Can you tell us where people can find your book, Debbie? Yes. So you can order it anywhere you like to order books. I always like to encourage people to use their local independent bookstore, but it is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and bookshop.org. The full title is Kitchen Medicine, How I Fed My Daughter Out of Failure to Thrive. You'll recognize the cover from the blueberries. (laughs) I love it. And friends, for those of you who are taking a walk or running or exercising or washing dishes, which is when I listen to a lot of podcasts. Don't worry, you don't have to stop to write it down. I will have a link in the show notes, which is the description of the show. So just scroll down and there will be a link there to Debbie's website and a place that you can buy the book. So we were talking earlier about how damaging that whole failure to thrive label can be. Let's talk about some advice that you can give parents whose children have been given that horrible label. Well, first of all, like I said before, it's very important to figure out what's causing that failure to thrive. It can be any number of things. I wouldn't even begin to create a list for our parents, but obviously your doctors are going to have to help you do that work and you can push them gently to try to find the right specialists that would help your own child. But in your own house, there are lots of little things you can do to amp up the calorie content of the foods they're eating, if indeed it is a matter of calories, which for some children it is not. So Assuming that that's the challenge, my favorite, favorite, favorite thing that I discovered is an ingredient called extra virgin coconut oil. You can get it at any grocery store. It's usually near where the rest of the oils are, and it's usually in a jar. And at room temperature, it looks a little bit like Vaseline. It's very thick, but when you apply any kind of heat to it, it melts into a very thin liquid with almost no flavor. And you can put this stuff in everything especially soup, because if soup's even a little warm, it just melts. But I used to melt it, put it on blueberries and cover the blueberries with powdered sugar. And just a tablespoon of this stuff is about 125 calories. That was my number one best solution. If, unlike me, you have a child who likes to drink thick things, obviously carnation instant breakfast, milkshakes, smoothies, ice cream, yogurt. Those are all great sources of calories that go down quickly, often before a little person will recognize that they're feeling full. And all those things are helpful, but it's most important to try to get to the root of the problem with Mm -hmm. your child's doctors. Right. I agree with you. But it does help to know that there are certain things that can be done. When my baby was diagnosed with failure to thrive, and then we finally figured out that he had a congenital heart defect. After he had his first open heart surgery, his cardiologist told me that he was too skinny and we needed to fatten him up and that he had to stop breastfeeding. And luckily I was an experienced mom by then, and I was 31 and I was stubborn. And I said, are you kidding? Any baby who's just had open heart surgery needs mother's milk. The mother's body knows how to give the baby things that you cannot find on the shelf. 
And I said, I'm not going to stop breastfeeding. It's important to me. I think it harkens back to what you were saying with the whole kitchen medicine. For me, breast milk felt kind of like kitchen medicine sure. for my baby. And he said, okay, fine. He said, I'll let you <laughs> continue to nurse your baby. He said, but just so that you know, other mothers who have babies like this, he said, I send them home and they measure every drop they give their baby and they're weighing the baby all the time. And I said, no, I'm not doing that either. I have a feeling now that we know what was wrong and his heart was fixed that he's going to be fine. And he said, well, if he's not on the scales, like he should be by Christmas, he said, then you're going to have to stop nursing him. Yes. We had the same conversations with my daughter's doctor and I nursed my daughter until she was nearly three years old. So you wow. have my full support. <laughs> I will say the best advice I ever got about breastfeeding was that it's wonderful as long as baby and mom are both still enjoying it. I yeah. do agree with you. I really, really appreciated being able to feed my daughter with my own milk. And there's always something else to try. Babies, of course, are a lot harder to amp their calories up on your own. But I agree. I just think it's very important not to discount the value of a mother's sanity in this. It, breastfeeding, right. you feel better. Yes. And me feel better. That's mm -hmm. great. If it was making me anxious and I was worried about it, then I would have switched to formula. Right. It right. really has to work for everybody. I agree 100%. I think for my own mental health, I needed to still feel that connection with my baby. And I don't think that my son's cardiologist really understood that, but my son's cardiologist nurse understood that. And after he left the room, when he was done with the visit, Glorianne, Hi, Glorianne, if you're listening, I love you. Glorianne said to me, Anna, you want to plump Alex up? And I said, yes. And she said, and you don't want to stop nursing? And I said, no. She said, here's what you do. She said, three months old now, right? And I said, yes. She said, when do you plan on starting him with cereal? And I said, well, actually, I started Joey at around three months of age. She said, okay, get some Cairo syrup and put a little bit of Cairo syrup in his cereal. And then when you start them on vegetables or when you start them on fruits, just put a little bit in there. And just like what you're saying with the extra virgin coconut oil, I bet if she had known about that, she would have said that instead. Mm. But she suggested the Cairo syrup for the same reasons that you're talking about the extra virgin coconut oil. And by the time my baby went back in December for his visit, the doctor his jaw just dropped. He couldn't believe how plump he had pinchable cheeks. I mean, he looked Aww. like a different baby. Yeah. I had from Sammy's heart surgery was in September and I had until I think January to get her back up to her pre-surgery weight. She'd lost like half a pound and that between the extra virgin coconut oil and this magical chickpea soup recipe I'd found, we clawed our way up there. But I hadn't been told I had to stop nursing. I'd been told if she wasn't there that they were going to put a feeding tube in. And so I wow. was bound and determined and absolutely no shade to feeding tubes. Thank goodness for feeding tubes for babies who need them and children who need them. But I did not want that. I was desperate to do it on my own. Yeah. And you're right. I feel the same way. I'm surprised they never mentioned a feeding tube to me for Alexander. And I'm mm -hmm. thankful because my friends who have had to deal with feeding tubes, they're their own bag of troubles. <laughs> right. Super, so. super crucial for those who need it. But yes, a lot of work. Yeah. And I actually have done a show about feeding tubes because a lot of times when parents start 
that journey, there's no exit strategy that's talked about. So for those of you parents who are dealing with the feeding tubes and you're wondering, is this what we're going to be stuck with for the rest of our lives? It doesn't have to be. And I'm even going to put a link to that show in my show notes here because Debbie is absolutely right. Feeding tubes can be the difference between a child thriving and not. But I do want you to know that there is a way to get off of the feeding tube if you are on it. And it's essential, again, to talk to your medical community about how you can help your child to thrive and not be dependent on feeding tubes or anything else. (laughs) That you could just help them to be healthy and be able to eat like normal people do. I can't believe how fast the time has gone, Debbie. You have been so interesting to talk to. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. It has been a pleasure to talk with you too. Thank you for having me. That does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today, my friends. Please come back next week on Tuesday at noon Eastern time for our brand new show. But since we're a podcast, you can listen to us anytime. We have over 360 episodes for you to listen to. So just check us out at www.heartunitetheglobe.org. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time, wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.